Well, it's uh, fitting today that my mother is here. Um, I asked you in your, the devotions that we sent out earlier this week to think about your family traditions and those things that identify you as uniquely your family. And uh, we certainly had quite a few of them growing up. We had a lot of family traditions, some of them pretty goofy. But, but uh, I think Aslan's trying to start a new family tradition today of, of uh, overdoing it on St. Patrick's Day. Um, <laughs> it kind of makes me, it reminds me of a story. Uh, there was a family that lived in northern Michigan. And uh, way back in antiquity, in the last part of the 19th century, when uh, uh, it came time and, and the son turned 18 years old and it was time for him to register for selective service, he walked across the frozen lake into the town and he registered, put his name on the line, signed himself up so that he could be drafted if his country needed him. And uh, when his son turned 18, he did the same thing. He walked across the frozen lake and signed himself up for selective service. And on and on, down in the family, his grandson walked across the lake. His great-grandson walked across the lake. And finally, one of the sons, his 18th birthday came around, and he decided he was going to do the same thing. He was going to go out, walk across that lake, and sign up for selective service. And so he got out. Started out early in the morning, didn't really tell his family where he was going, and he walked out and started walking out, and uh, very quickly fell in the lake and started to drown. And his family heard him th thrashing around out there, and they went and pulled him out of the lake, and he said, Mom, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm not really part of the family? Does it mean I'm adopted? And he said, she said, no. It means all your ancestors were born in December, and you were born in June. We are continuing our study of the book of Romans today with a very critical passage. Uh, Paul has been drawing attention to our sin, and his pastor has told us he's narrowing the focus of attention more and more until finally he comes to the point and he draws attention like a laser pointer uh, to the issue of his primary audience here, his fellow Jew in Rome. Last week, we saw Paul begin to set up that point that he is making here. He began in Romans demonstrating clearly our sin. He talked about God's wrath in response to our sin. Uh, uh, and here in Romans 2, Paul tells us that the day of judgment is coming, and it cannot be avoided or deferred. You can't file for a continuance or a change of venue. When the day comes, you have to face it, and you need to understand at that time God's criteria for judgment that we're going to be judged for our works, but saved by our faith. And if you're relying on anything else, it's not going to hold up. He begins, as we learned last week in verses 7 and 8, demonstrating that God determines the motivation for a person's behavior. He tells us that if you're patiently seeking God's glory and honor uh, out of love for God and gratitude for what He's done for you, uh, then in the end, the end for you will be eternal life. But if you're self-seeking, if you don't have any desire to obey the truth, then you reveal the falseness of your faith, the falseness of your confession of Jesus as Lord. So what is your motivation for what you do? Do you do it to please yourself or to please God? Paul tells us that God knows the answer to that question and it will have great relevance on the day of judgment. And you better reflect on it honestly and know what your motivations are before that day comes. Then in verses 9 and 10, he tells us that God evaluates the results of a person's behavior. 
He says that those who do evil are bringing tribulation and distress on themselves, but those who do good will find honor and peace regardless of whether they are Jews or Greeks. He says God won't use the Jewish law to condemn Gentile sinners, but he will use it to condemn Jewish people. That would have been distressing to the Jewish audience. Up to this point, they may have been uh, resting on their own identity as Jews, as we'll see later uh, in this chapter. But here Paul begins to shed light on the truth of the error in that thinking. You see, possession of Torah had become, in much Jewish thought, a badge of privilege, a kind of talisman, a sign that Israel was inalienably God's people. No, says Paul. What counts is doing Torah. And it's going to take him eight or ten more chapters to fully explain what doing Torah means. But we got to follow the argument through to understand him at that point. And, and for now, suffice it to say that starting from verse 9 and continuing on in chapter 3, Paul's statements like the fact that glory, honor, and peace would come to the Jew first, but also for Gentiles, would have been showstoppers. Up to here... The Roman Jews may have been amening along with Paul and agreeing that God's wrath was coming. But here, here's where it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable for them. What do you mean God shows no partiality? Like it says in verse 11. I thought we were special. God's chosen people. Don't we get special treatment? They might be asking themselves that question. But over and over again in Jesus' ministry, He was accused of violating the letter of the law to help or to heal someone on the Sabbath. And repeatedly, Jesus would point at the results and he would say, don't you see this? Don't you care about the fact that these people have been healed, that sight's been brought to the blind? Don't you care about the fact that these people have been helped? And his accusers repeatedly demonstrated that they didn't care about those results. Only the blind, cold letter of the law as they interpreted it. And Paul here says there's more to it than that. And in verses 13 and 15, through 15, he gives them a reality check. He says God weighs a person's attitude. He tells them that it's not those that hear the law that are going to be justified. He tells them that many Gentiles follow the law better than they do. They prove that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has so sanctified and changed their nature that it They demonstrate that the law is written on their heart, as it says in verse 15. They may not have the law in code, but they have it in conscience. And their conscience bears witness within them. And then Paul reminds us that the day of judgment, when when that day comes, that nothing will be hidden. God will judge the secrets of men, as it says in verse 16. And he reminds us of what Jesus told us in John chapter 5, verse 22, that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Or as Paul puts it in verse 16, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God will judge everyone through Jesus Christ. And that's an important distinction, because when Jesus died on the cross, the sins of all mankind were judged And Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, was the substitute who endured the full wrath and punishment of God for all the sins of everyone who's ever lived. The judgment of all human sin by God through the propitiatory sacrifice, thank you, um, of His Son on the cross has made it possible for all men everywhere to be freely forgiven and thus reconciled to God. 
That's important because as Paul has been helping us to understand, we've all sinned. The verdict for every one of us is guilty. Paul's going to continue to make this point as John alluded to in his prayer earlier in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 10 and again in 20 and in 23 and again here in chapter 6 verse 7 again in chapter 6 verse 17 but he wasn't providing new information here. We're not getting ahead of ourselves to point that out. This idea that everyone had fallen short of the glory of God that all of us have sinned would have been familiar territory as part of Jewish thinking. Ecclesiastes 7.20 tells us, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And Psalm 14 tells us that everyone has turned aside and become corrupt. There's none righteous, no, not one. In fact, Paul is actually quoting Psalm 14.3 in Romans 3.10. It was part of Jewish teaching that no one was righteous, but somehow the Jewish people, much like ourselves, thought that applied to everyone else and not them. You see, they were standing on a false hope. They were counting on their identity as Jews to have some kind of meaning on Judgment Day. And Paul is going to devote the rest of this chapter to pointing out the error of that false hope for us. He clearly tells us that if our hope is in anything other than Jesus' identity and His righteousness, that we're destroying ourselves. In verse 17, Paul points out that these people were calling themselves Jews and relying on the law and even having the arrogance to boast in God. And Paul attacks the very heart of that identity and he challenges what it means to be a Jew. In order for us to truly understand the point he's trying to make here, we're going to have to understand more about the meaning of the Mosaic Law. As Pastor Chris and I were talking in in preparation for this sermon and and preparing for it, um, we realized very quickly that this is groundwork that needed to be laid in order for us to understand what's coming next. So I apologize in advance if most of the rest of my message for you today sounds more like a seminary lecture on the law, but I think it's crucially important for us to understand the point that Paul's going to make here in chapter 3 when he provides us with one of the clearest most concise messages of the gospel that we find anywhere in Scripture. And I promise not to go too deep here, but there are some important things that we should understand about the meaning of the law that are going to have great application for us today. We could obviously go very deeply into the law. You could make the law, the study of Torah, the work of your entire life and never fully exhaust the subject. The law is incredibly complex. And and even in the distinctions that we're going to make here today, there's a tremendous amount of overlap and interweaving of thoughts and ideas, of, of thought and purpose, function and result. Torah is an incredible woven tapestry that in itself is proof that Scripture is divinely inspired because it is inhumanly complex and divinely perfect. So obviously the way that we're going to deal with it today is going to be very shallow in relation to that great complexity. The holy and sacred mastery that is Torah. But perhaps we'll dig into it more deeply than the average Christian normally studies the law. So let's begin. First, we need to understand what was meant by the Mosaic Law. 
there were three parts of the law. The law, the law can be broken down in a lot of different ways, but for our purposes here today, we're going to think of it as being in three distinct parts. The first is the Ten Commandments, which God provides in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, and he reiterates again in the sermons in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. These are the parts of the law that most people think of. In the past, they've been almost universally acknowledged as applying to all mankind. Not only for the Jews, but all, for, for all moral, right-thinking people. These ten statements of, of law provide us with a summary of the entirety of the rest. The Ten Commandments are made up of ten specific laws, the first four dealing with man's relationship with God, and the last six dealing with man's relationship with his fellow man. And for centuries, these were part not only of Jewish culture and identity, but also part of other cultures as well. They, they served as foundational statements, not only of the Mosaic Law, but, but of, of codified national laws here in this country and in many other countries. And it's only been in recent years that concerted efforts by a minority of atheists and agnostics uh, has sought to remove any mention of them from our courthouses and from our government publications and institutions. But in addition to these Ten Commandments, the law also includes the ordinances. These 613 commands, statutes, moral applications, ceremonial principles, and identity markers are found throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They cover a myriad of topics from the divine to the mundane. They set out forms of worship. They govern marriage relationships. They provide dietary restrictions. They outline Israel's covenantal relationship, covenantal obligations as the chosen people. And they give the nation of Israel specific instructions to safeguard the health, the economy. Gives them instructions for their courts and their international relations. They outlined everything needed for life in Jewish society. The Sanhedrin, the highest court of justice, uh, the Supreme Council in, in ancient Israel, devoted their lives to these ordinances. Paul, who as Saul was a member of that Sanhedrin council, said, described it as being enslaved to them. But perhaps the most important part of the Mosaic Law was the worship system. Throughout Exodus chapter 20 to chapter 40, and also Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, and again in chapter 23 of Leviticus, we're given ordinances and, and rules that govern the interactions of the Israelites with God through tabernacle and temple worship. The worship laws outline the qualifications, responsibilities, and practices of the priesthood. These laws instructed the people on how to build the tabernacle and its fixtures. They outlined the need for sacrifice and the requirements of what it took for a sacrifice to be worthy. They outlined the requirements of a worship-filled Sabbath and it provided a way of worship for the community through faith, through their yearly feasts and worship festivals. All of these laws had specific functions. They were not just arbitrary rules handed down by God. He had a specific reason for all of them. And they all performed important functions in Jewish society. 
Now, I want to be clear here. The functions and purposes of the law, God's plan in providing the law, is complex beyond human understanding. We're never truly going to understand it until God himself instructs us in it. But for the sake of simplicity in our understanding today, we're going to outline three important functions of the law. The first function that we're going to examine is governance. Torah was the law code of the theocracy of Israel. It it outlined the covenantal relationship that the people of Israel had and and, and that they had agreed to in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 8. By obeying Torah, the Israelites were able to take possession of the promised land. They became a nation through Torah. We see that in Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 and 2. And the people agreed to put themselves under God's rule in Deuteronomy 5.27. Now we have trouble truly understanding a theocracy today. Maybe you learned that word in school and so you know that a theocracy is a form of government in which God is recognized as the supreme civil ruler and authority. But ancient Israel is the only true theocracy that's ever existed, and it only existed there for a very short time before they demanded a king for themselves. Most putative theocracies are exactly that. They're theocracies in name only. They function under the rule of priests who claim to be commissioned by and to speak for God or for some other deity. They they probably would be better described as ecclesiocracies. Governments ruled by churches, not by God. But in a true theocracy, God directly rules his people. And he provided Torah so that the Israelites would understand his expectations for his nation. He provided for them. He led them. He fought for them. He fed them. He nurtured them. He protected them. He fulfilled all the functions of any human ruler. Any function that a human ruler would provide, he fulfilled for the people. But he did so without human failures, human ambitions, or human corruption. Or human abuse of power. He provided pure, perfect, divine rule. And his perfect law was enforced by him through his prophets and priests. And it was complete, perfect, and whole unto itself. It provided the best possible and most successful system of government that's ever existed on the face of the earth, and its like will not be seen again until Christ returns to rule and reign. But the law did not just provide governance for Israel, it also provided identity. It set apart the nation of Israel as unique. From the time of Abraham, God told his people that they'd be set apart from the other nations. We see that in Genesis 12, 1 and 3, when God promises to make Abraham's descendants great and to honor them with the privilege of being a blessing to the nations of the world. And he repeats that promise in Exodus 19, 5, when he tells them that if they'll keep Torah, they'll be his treasured possessions among all peoples. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, God tells them that he didn't do this because they were more numerous or more powerful, or better than anybody else. They did nothing to deserve it. They didn't merit it. He did it because he loves them, and he's keeping his promise to Abraham. And since they were his chosen people, he has a special plan and a special purpose 
for them, that requires them to maintain their cultural identity and not allow their faith and practices to be corrupted by the nations that were around them. And so the law provided them with a set of limitations that kept them from being deluded by the practices and the pagan values of the other people that surrounded them. These laws provided identity in many ways, from the physical through circumcision to national dress to their national appearance to their diet, their cuisine, their marriage customs, their holidays and festivals, and in many, many more ways. Those holidays and festivals themselves were there to, to reinforce the, the Israelite memory of what God had done for them, to help them remember who they were. They were supposed to be a blessing. Over and ever, over again throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel turn away from these distinctive identifying characteristics these features, and they intermarry and they compromise their faith. They set up pagan altars and they worship pagan gods. They end up conquered by the very people around them that they had compromised themselves to. And it's not until they return to the law and eliminate these corrupting influences on their identity that, that they are restored to the land. These provisions for Jewish identity were not meant to serve as a source of pride or to elevate them above the people around them. They were simply meant to remind them of their covenant relationship with God and His amazing promise to bless the whole world through them. That blessing would not only be the provision of Messiah through the line of Abraham, but it would also be for them to serve as a blessing through their commitment to the Word. Their identity was supposed to be a shining and attractive beacon to the world around them. They were there to share what they learned from the law with the world. And that leads us to our next point. The third function of the law is to provide us with wisdom. The law provides wisdom principles that are still relevant today. David's psalm to the law of the Lord that we find in Psalm 19 tells us in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Proverbs 2.6 tells us the Lord gives wisdom and from His mouth comes understanding. Paul specifically draws this out in his second letter to Timothy when in chapter 3 verse 16, he tells him that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Jesus repeatedly quoted Scripture in His ministry. He repeatedly drew out the wisdom that can be found in the pages of Scripture. And Paul returns to it over and over again. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us that the law was our schoolmaster, our guardian that kept us safe and instructed until Jesus came to justify us by faith. And even many people who deny the deity of God and reject the idea that the law is divinely inspired still look to its wisdom, still look to it as a, a source of wisdom that kind of transcends cultural barriers and divides. That's the part that Paul repeatedly tells his fellow Jews throughout his writings that they're missing. They've missed the rich wisdom that is at the heart of, uh, of the law and they've replaced it with a simplistic letter-by-letter -letter 
understanding. They've missed the point that, that the law, the wisdom principles in the law, were meant to form a work of transform, transformation inside them and make them wise. They weren't meant to replace wisdom. They were meant to cultivate it and grow it so that we could, we could act wisely from the heart, not by the letter of the law. All of these functions of the law, governance, identity, wisdom, they become skewed and broken when we miss the important part, and that's the purpose of the law. Now, I don't pretend to know the full mind of God. The only thing that I am dogmatically certain of when it comes to the mind of God is that I am wrong, at least in scope. But God does make clear some of his purposes in providing the law. And I think we can put our, our faith in those purposes that he chooses to reveal about himself. So I'm sure we could make a list that would go on for days and days of the purposes of the law. Uh, but for today, we're going to focus on three purposes of the law. Three things that we can be sure that God intends for the law to do because he told us so himself. And that's actually our first point. Our human minds can't fathom the mind of God. We only know that he cho- what He chooses to reveal about Himself. So the first purpose of the law is revelation. The law reveals something about God. Specifically, the law serves to reveal the holy character of God. And again, we know this because God revealed it about Himself. In the book of the law, Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 2, God says, Speak to all the congregations of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He says, I'm giving you the law so that you know what holiness looks like, because I am holy. Again in Leviticus, chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, He says that He's given the law to Israel so that they could be sanctified by it. The law became a powerful advantage for the Jews. Paul's going to go in, uh, into that in chapter 3 to explain that, and Chris is going to get to that next week. The law taught them something very special about God, His holy character. But we as Christians have an even greater advantage. Have you thought about that? We don't need an external set of commandments to reveal to us the holiness of God. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And he does the work of sanctification in us. Over and over again in Scripture, we're told about this unique advantage that Christians have. An advantage over the law. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Galatians 5.5 1 Peter 1.2 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Paul's going to continue to draw this point out as we move through the book of Romans. And he's going to give us specific details about what it looks like in Romans chapter 8. But we need to understand that the purpose of the law in reveal, revealing God's character to the Jews is made complete in us by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. But for the first century Jew, that revelation of God's character was absolutely necessary. But Paul in Romans chapter 2 is drawing out that purpose. The purpose of conviction. The purpose of showing us our need for a Savior so that his fellow Jews would come to the understanding that They needed a Savior to redeem them on Judgment Day. That they needed to be justified by the power of Jesus Christ just as we need it today. But as powerful 
and important a purpose as that is, it is not the most important purpose of the law. The primary, the most important purpose of the law is to bring God glory. The primary purpose is to glorify God. And that was the main point that the Jews Paul was addressing had missed. They thought the law somehow glorified them. In verse 17, Paul tells us that they were relying on it. They were boasting in it. That word rely there in verse 17 literally means resting on. They were sitting motionless in inactivity, counting on their identity, their Jewishness under the law to be enough to save them. Paul returns to this point repeatedly in Romans, but again, it was not a new concept to the Jews. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43 said that the entire purpose of all creation, not just the law, but everything was God's glory. The entirety of Psalms 19 is spent glorifying God for the gift of the law. And David tells us again in Psalm 23 that the reason that he leads us in the path of righteousness is for his name's sake. In other words, for his glory. In Ezekiel chapter 20, God tells us through his prophet that his actions to set apart Israel and rescue them from captivity were entirely for the sake of his name, that it wouldn't be uh, profaned in the sight of the nations that surrounded them. But that's the very part that Paul tells them that they were missing in Romans chapter 2. Verses 23 and 24. So we've examined all this. Thank you for bearing with me in it. <laughs> we've learned about the parts of the law, the functions of the law, the purposes of the law, especially the primary purpose of the law, glorifying God, so that we can understand the main point that Paul is trying to make here. And not surprising, given everything that's led up to it, it's a point about sin. It's a point of the failure of Israel. In Romans 2, verses 17 through 20, he shows them their sinful pride. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He tells them, if you look at yourself and that's what you see, you're so sure of yourself so proud of your Jewish identity that really had nothing to do with you. It was given freely to you for God's glory and not yours. You're so proud that you are blind to the truth. And the truth is that you are full of hypocrisy. In verses 21 and 22, Paul asks them, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? He said you, sp you spent so much time patting yourself on the back for the fact that you have Torah and, and that makes you so much better than the people around you, but you've missed the point of the law. You've missed the fact that your hypocrisy, your wickedness, your sinful pride has led you to betray and dishonor God. Not only are they not glorifying God's name, not only are they not being a blessing that they were intended to be to the world around them. In verses 23 and 24, Paul tells them, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He tells them that their identity, that they're so proud of, their status as chosen people, is first and foremost for the glory of God. And if you fail in that, not only fail in it, but act to bring about the opposite, the blaspheming of God's name, that you've got to be prepared to pay the price of failure. Beginning in verse 25, Paul tells us that those things that we think make us special that mark us out as unique, those badges of identity become the opposite. They become badges of shame and betrayal. They become the mark of a traitor when they steal glory from the one in whom all glory should dwell. He tells them that the price of their failure is this, the loss of identity. In verse 28 and 29, he tells them, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There it is. Everything stripped away and laid bare. Their hypocrisy, their pride, their shame, and their betrayal exposed for everyone to see. Their Jewish identity that they counted on to mean something in the day of judgment, Paul used this carefully constructed argument that he's been building since the beginning of Romans to knock it out from under them. To undermine their conceit and their arrogance and just take away what they were resting on. And if you think about it, it does the same thing for us. You see, this passage it's not very hard for us to look at it and for us to see the lesson for us. We too have our pride. We're repeatedly warned about our pride throughout Scripture, our pride and our selfish ambition. It's too many places for me to easily count. In James 4, 6, we're told that God is opposed to our pride but gives grace to the humble. In Philippians 2.3, Paul tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than ourselves. Later in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us to have no confidence in the flesh, but to worship by the Spirit of God. And when we do that, we become our own badges of identity and have no need of those outward identifiers that Torah requires. The language he uses there is that when we give up ourselves and act in humility, we become the circumcision. Proverbs 13.10 tells us that the heart of our disunity and our strife with one another, that when we dig under it and we look, we are always going to find selfishness, pride, and insolence. You wonder why you're at war with your brother? It's pride. You see, a real follower of Jesus Christ understands what Paul is going to go on to say in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, that what makes us Christians is the fact that we've received grace. Not by anything we've done, so we have no room to think more highly of ourselves because of it. And until we understand that, we're going to continue to, just as the Jews continued, we're going to, that, that Paul was addressing here, we're going to continue to have our hypocrisy. Jesus warned us of that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, when he told us to get the log out of our own eye before we have the nerve to try and get the speck out of somebody else's. We're given a great test for hypocrisy in 1 John 4, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For, those who, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. That's a convicting one. I have to check myself on that one. We criticize, we chastise, we condemn people for honest mistakes and yet we fail to see our own spirit of hatefulness and bitterness that's keeping us from having the relationship with God that we ought to have. Peter warns us of it too in 1 Peter 2.16 when he tells us that we shouldn't use our freedom from the law that Christ has provided for us to be a cover-up for doing evil. Rather, we should use it to live as servants of the true God. And Jesus warns us in Luke 6.46 that our disobedience turns our cry of Lord, Lord into an insult to Him. And if you're standing here right now making a list in your head of all the people that you're glad are hearing this sermon today, you better make room at the top of it for yourself. Me too. It's so easy for us to fall into this trap of hypocrisy. And as Paul points out, that leads inevitably to our betrayal. In Paul's letter to Titus, he puts it like this in chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That hits me like a punch in the gut. Unfit for any good work. For years, I defined myself by my work. When people would ask me what I do, I do this. It was part of who I was. And Paul here says that when you don't keep the glory of God in mind, when your heart is not in the right place, that identity of what you thought you were based on your works is meaningless. It's knocked out from under you. You have nothing. You are unfit for any good work. Clearly, this wasn't just a problem today, though. It was a problem in the first century as well. Peter writes in his second epistle, chapter 2, verse 2, that many will follow the sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Following their sensuality. Does that sound familiar? We worship sensuality in our culture, and I don't just mean it in the sexual sense, but in every other sense as well. And it leads us astray by our own greed and our own corruption. We have people that call themselves men of God abusing thousands of children worldwide and so-called religious Christian organizations covering it up. You have well-known pastors that are defrauding the elderly of millions of dollars. Nationally known preachers that are betraying their wives' trust. Now, I I do know that the media is so much quicker to report our failings than our successes. It reports those failings way more than it reports the good work that we do. But with stories of betrayal and dishonor brought to the name of God like this, is it any wonder that the world around us is fed up with those of us who call ourselves Christians? And you know what? It's not just the famous and the well-known people that do it. We come to church on Sunday and we share it on Facebook, we put a little geotag on there, we're in church, come join us. We repost and we share the sermon, then later on the week, in the week we pour out vitriol and animosity on other people. We like and we tag things that we know dishonor God's name. We post our arrogant, prideful selfies and we compete for the approval of mankind all the while forgetting the approval of our God. 
then every once in a while we post a little Bible verse meme and we hashtag it blessed and we think that makes up for it when in fact it makes it worse. Is it any wonder that unsaved people reject God because of our hypocrisy? We are blaspheming the name of the Lord with our actions. And just like the Jews that Paul is writing to in Romans chapter 2, we're going to have to pay our penalty. Jesus himself warns us of that penalty in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, when he draws to a conclusion his Sermon on the Mount with these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What are you relying on? Is your faith in your identity or in Jesus' identity and sacrifice? Do you think that carrying a big black Bible or, or sticking an ichthys fish symbol on the back of your car is enough to give you a Christian identity? Are you walking around in your not-of-this-world t-shirt living like everybody else? Are you counting on your church membership to save you? Worse yet, are you counting on your good works to sanctify and redeem you? Have you lashed out in hypocrisy and judgmental criticism with words that tear down your brothers and sisters in Christ all the while patting on your, yourself on the back that you're not like them? Are you still trying to follow the law letter by letter, word by word, and completely missing the freedom that we have in Jesus? You see, Jesus gave us a new law, he says. A new commandment. Odd that it's a new law when we find it in Leviticus, but he called it a new law. In Matthew 22, verse 37, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he goes on to say in verse 39 that there's another one that's a close second. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, have you thought about that? Have you really reflected on that, that if you kept those two commandments, you'd have no need for all the rest? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you don't need another commandment to tell you not to take his name in vain. Or to remember his Sabbath day, every day becomes the Sabbath day. If you truly love your neighbor better than yourself, you don't need to be told not to kill him. You don't need to be told not to steal from him. Your heart would never turn to that in the first place. If we loved our neighbors as ourselves, how would the world look different? And that's exactly the point that Paul was trying to make here. Keeping the letter of the law is not enough. Obedience is a matter of the heart. Where is your heart? Where is your hope? Where is your identity? Are you like the Jews that Paul was address addressing? Worshiping the law? Or are you worshiping the lawgiver? Is your faith, your identity as a Christian in religious ritual? Or is your religiousness based on your righteous relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to stop thinking righteousness is something that we do by following a set of rules and think instead righteousness is a matter of right relationship. These, these laws that are passed down to us are passed down to keep us from breaking our relationship with God. 
these things that he tells us not to do. He tells us not to do them, not because he's got just an arbitrary set of rules that he made up. It's because he knows and understands the human heart and the broken world that we live in. And he knows that if we do these things, they're going to come between us and him. And he desperately doesn't want that to happen. He loves you so much that he's willing to tell you how to maintain a good relationship with him. He gives you a roadmap to keep that way clear. And the beginning of that roadmap starts with Jesus Christ. He's the one that bridges the gap. And out of love for him, because he first loved us, when in our brokenness and our sin and our transgressions, when there was nothing worthy of us at all, he came to us and he found us in that miry clay and he pulled us out. He called us unto himself and he says, take my hand. And we reach up out of that and we take his hand. We call him Lord and out of devotion and love for him, we serve him, we obey him, and we become a blessing and an example to the people around us for his glory, not ours. Who are you glorifying today? Whose identity are you counting on? Let us pray.